Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And our topic today is technology and specifically the failure of technology to disrupt education or did it fail? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. Or did it? I'm I'm going with yes, it did. It, It did. Well, we have a great guest today. It's Justin Reich. He's at MIT and he has a really great book called Failure to Disrupt. And I asked him if in light of the pandemic, he should re-release it and change that that title just a little bit. And it should be Failure to Disrupt dot, 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 so far. <laughs> yeah, although, you know, it'll be uh, interesting to hear from him. Um, you know, I think what a lot of people would say is that the technology has not actually been particularly disruptive when it comes to public education, that we all got disrupted, uh, that education got moved online, but it's actually um, right in line with something that Justin talks about in his book, that um, the, the most frequent adoptions of technology tend to be those that enable us to do exactly what we were doing previously, rather than challenging us to think about education in a new way, right? So what did we do? We just moved our classrooms into Zoom rooms and lost a lot of quality in the process. So that wasn't really a, a quote-unquote disruptive innovation that anybody's going to be clamoring for anytime soon. Well, this there's such a long history to this, and I was thinking about how many episodes we've actually done on related topics. I'm thinking about the one we did with Bob Hample about the incredible optimism that learning by mail would be the disruptive technology <laughs> that finally, finally set the country aright. And then we did a great episode with Audrey Waters about the origins of the teaching machine and the idea that finally, finally, teaching machines were going to be the things that fixed our teachers and our schools. And I raise this because you can already feel that sort of wild, cockeyed optimism creeping in again, that even after the wake-up call and disappointment over remote learning in the wake of the pandemic, that people are starting to pin their hopes once again that there is a technological fix to remedying inequality and helping students make it over what they lost. Yeah, techno-utopianism in public education is a classic. Uh, it's a theme that emerges over and over over time. And, you know, there are some some reasons for that. One of them is that, you know, we're facing... Um, budget constraints all the time in public education because it's publicly funded, right? So the introduction of technology is always promised as a way of reducing costs without reducing the quality. Um, And that's because we see that in so much of American life, right? The use of technology in production 
for instance, uh, has reduced the costs of manufactured goods dramatically over time while actually improving quality. And then there's the issue related to the fact that uh, education is inherently the work of future making, right? That uh, when we are investing in young people, we are investing in the future, right? We're talking about a future workforce, a future citizenry. And so we're often then vulnerable to thinking that, you know, exposing them to technology now is somehow going to make them better suited for their future responsibilities. And the third reason is that because schools are such accessible institutions, um, we can see inside of them much more readily than we can many other institutions and organizations. And it just makes them easier for us to criticize on the grounds that they haven't kept up to date, right? We, we're not snooping around law offices or post offices or, you know, large corporations. Um, and in fact, to the extent that we are, uh, you know, whether that's in our jobs or uh, what we're exposed to through the media, um, we believe that any changes there ought to apply everywhere. Um, so there are some reasons why this techno-utopianism is so prevalent in public education. But of course, uh, there's a long history of failure to, um, not only to disrupt, because there are some cases of disruption, um, but to actually improve teaching and learning. Well, Jack, when you were a youngster, did you ever imagine in your wildest dreams that you would grow up to not only co-host a podcast, but to actually see your co-host through the computer screen? I had dreamed of engaging in a letter-writing uh, relationship where my pen pal and I would correspond about a topic of great interest to us. And that's essentially what you and I do on this show, Jennifer. Well, our guest today is Justin Reich. He's the director of the Teaching Systems Lab at MIT, and he's the author of a great new book called Failure to Disrupt, Why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education. And last spring, as schools around the country were suddenly shutting down, Justin was reviewing the page proofs of his then forthcoming book, which got him wondering about whether the story he was telling about the massive hype around ed tech, all of the wasted money, and the endless recycling of ideas. Was it about to be well disrupted? Well, I think the story of the pandemic in terms of education technology is pretty straightforward, is nearly universal, and I think it aligns well with the themes of the book. You know, for 20 years, education technologists told us that we were on the cusp of a dramatic transformation in schooling because new technologies, personal computers, then internet connection, then social media, then AI and machine learning, like it was all getting ready to sweep away the past. So when schools closed down almost overnight, that was also EdTech's big chance to deliver on all of those lofty promises. And that did not happen. And then schools were hobbled by a pandemic that sent 1.7 billion learners home. The world was wide open. There's all kinds of things uh, that schools and teachers could have done. And they did almost the same thing everywhere, which is that they chose to organize their response about two of the very oldest learning technologies that we have, learning management systems. So things like Google Classroom and Canvas and learning management systems, they're basically like the folder that my elementary school student has in her backpack. And it's 
you know, it says to home on one side and to school on the other side. Um, and she passes documents back and forth with her teacher using that folder, like people do at Google Classroom or Canvas. And then the other technology that people are using extensively, you know, when it was introduced in the 1930s was called video telephony. And we call it video conferencing now, but it like sort of lets people see each other and talk to each other from a distance. And then organizationally, structurally, schools basically said, well, let's use these two technologies to take as many of our in-person schooling practices as they're formulated right now and port them online. If you were a middle, high school, or college teacher, you turned on your webcam and started talking. If you taught younger kids, you probably figured out pretty quickly that school through an iPad is not particularly effective, or it requires an even older innovation, a learning coach, usually a mom. As Justin took all of this in, he saw a very familiar pattern in the annals of EdTech, a failure to disrupt. When teachers get access to new technologies, they use them to extend existing practices. If you want to make any bet about how a new technology will be used, it's to do whatever it is that we were doing before. And I don't mean that as a knock. It's not a critique of anyone. It's just a descriptive, reliable observation. And the second, which we've also sadly seen, is that when there are really exciting, innovative new practices or benefits from education technology, they tend to accrue to the most affluent students who have the financial, social, and technical capital to take advantage of new innovations. In fact, one of Justin's takeaways is that the disruption of the pandemic may have actually tempered the techno-optimism that drives so much of the debate about education. Take, for example, the free market dream of unbundling education products from schools, a topic we've discussed many times on this show. Well, the pandemic would seem to be a golden opportunity for these particular disruptors. But then politics got in the way. For a long time, people on the right have been enthusiastic about online learning because it is relatively straightforward to connect with free market approaches to education. It used to be the case that if you wanted to say, oh, we're going to give kids vouchers, we're going to have the money not flow to school districts, but flow to individual kids and families, and they can use that to buy a particular school. So if you don't want to buy your local public school, you can buy a parochial school or a charter school. With online learning, that marketplace becomes you know, potentially even more filled with choice. Like you can buy your math from Khan Academy and your sports from your local Catholic school or, or from Reebok. And then, you know, the Trump administration decides that it's really important for them to project normalcy, to tell everyone to open schools as soon as possible. And Betsy DeVos, who's been a champion of online learning for a long time, is forced to get up in front of the nation and be like, online learning is terrible. We need to stop it as soon as possible and get kids back into regular in-person schools, which is the only good kind of schooling we have. I just don't think there's going to be a huge constituency that's going to be able to effectively stand up and say, oh, yeah, ed tech is really going to save us this time because, they're, <laughs> because they're, you know, families of 57 million American children who are going, no, it's not. It was pretty lousy. And then some of the, you know, sort of historical policy champions of these choices kind of turned their, you know, turned away from online learning at a really pivotal point. So, Jack, I was recently reading a very sour article in Ednext because that's what I do these days. I doom scroll, and when when there isn't enough doom to scroll through, I, I go off and I read, you know, really sort of glum. You want to see and, what the other half is saying about schools? I want to I want to read a, a sour take, and so this argument was basically that you know schools the pandemic gave schools the 
best opportunity they've ever had to, you know, to disrupt and do amazing things with technology. And spoiler, they blew it. Uh. (laughs) And I was thinking, you know, after listening to Justin talk and the whole argument about how that you can really, looking at history, you can expect that teachers in schools would respond in the way that they do, right? That the the first thing that they do is try to incorporate whatever the new technology is into something that they're doing. And I was reminded of the amazing uh, episode that we just did with Nima Vajia and the students and how she heard in her students' stories that what they most needed in the world was connection. And so she did everything she could to establish that connection. And it's a completely different way of looking at how schools responded than the Sour Ed Next take. But I think that there's a sort of case to be made. Like, what if we evaluated their response on on those terms? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm also thinking of, you know, a sort of 1960s, 1970s media theorist sort of critique that could be levied against those making the case that education can be moved online and that if it isn't effectively moved online, that it's the fault of educators, um, right? That this would be the, the media theorist critique about um, the limits of screens and uh, the fact that screens are more about entertainment than they are about education, uh, that they are largely one-way media. Of course, you know that was being written at a time when they truly were one-way media. But of course, the way that we interact with them is much different than the way that we interact with human beings. And we can see this in the inclination among students to turn their screens off, um, right? Because TVs don't watch us. Uh, we watch them. And so students aren't turning their teachers off, they're turning themselves off uh, because they want to interact with screens as screens. And I think that's really important to consider here. There are just a lot of assumptions being made about the way that technology can replace real life. And there are very real limits about the extent to which that is true. We know that relationships are critical in education, particularly when we're talking about a population of young people, many of whom are literally children who are compelled by law to be at school, right? So what we need to do, we know as educators, is motivate them and create among them a desire to be there. And that's really relationship dependent. Back to Justin. So one thing you need to know about failure to disrupt, neither the book nor the author is anti-technology. Justin wants us to give up on the perennial promise that there is a cheap and easy tech fix for our education challenges, but that is not the same thing as saying that there's nothing edtech can do. The trick, he says, is finding the right balance. We should definitely avoid these arguments that education technology is going to sweep away the past and lead to some glorious new future. That's just not going to happen. We should also be somewhat cautious of arguments that say, you know, technology is just a scam and we should never use it and it shouldn't help. We're living in a world that's where we're transforming the geochemistry of the planet to be inhospitable to human civilization. And there's just going to be more interrupted schooling in the future. There's going to be more fires and more floods and more freezing. And we should make sure that every kid 
kid has access to a computer. And we should treat broadband in the 21st century like we treated electricity in the 20th century as something, you know, not that it's a responsibility for local municipalities for everyone to get connected, but, you know, as a whole national project. You know, the trick is to say, okay, there is a role for technology in thinking about how we're going to support students to do some of the unfinished learning from this year. And let's do that in sensible ways and humane ways, you know, and not bet the farm on it. You know, if we're going to bet the farm on anything in education, bet the farm on teachers and educators and families. Um, Our technologies are only as powerful as the communities that guide their youth. That's a big part of why Justin looks at the disruption of the past year, not just as a straight-up failure. See how I use the words disruption and failure there? Kids learned a lot about technology, and adults got to practice something that Justin thinks is essential in education, the art of tinkering. You know, it's hard to imagine being a citizen who's able to engage in the civic world in all the ways that young people would want to without having some proficiency with computers and the internet and technology skills. There's all kinds of awesome stuff that people learn online and is a really satisfying, meaningful part of their learning, and it prepares them for workforce and those kinds of things. And so there are good reasons to be interested in the role of technology in schools. There is no good reason from anything we've learned in history to believe that technology is going to sweep away the future and bring us to the promised land and have us bypass democracy and all these kinds of things. There's just going to be messy democracy with computers in it now. And it's for sure going to add as many problems around privacy and security and autonomy and consent and all those kinds of things as there are problems it will fix. What I hope that educators will come to celebrate is just the process of tinkering, the sort of long, slow process of making human development a a little bit better. And I do believe that there are ways that technology can do that. I think as we look across the pandemic, I think even some of the people who have most disliked remote learning, independent learning are lots and lots Lots of teachers and students are just going to want to come back to something that feels a lot like regular in-person school. But I think there are going to be a lot from that experience where we say, oh, we could do more one-on-one home check-ins that happen through Zoom. Oh, I did learn some apps and some tools that I want to keep integrating in my routine. I think we should celebrate that kind of incremental progress. I thought that this would be a good opportunity to let listeners and let them know a little bit about our process. How we go our, about making our process, this. you and me. Yeah, how we go uh-huh. about putting this podcast together. I think they know together. what the process is. I like think Jen- that Jen- Jennifer Jennifer pulls a last minute trick on Jack, and he scrambles to feel prepared. Well, so I think that people assume when they listen to one of these that you know, sort of, we're always you know we're always together. It certainly seems like we're always together, <laughs> but the reality <laughs> is that that often when it's time for one of these interviews, I reach out to remind you, and it turns out that somehow, again, it's not in your calendar. Jennifer, that that has literally happened one time. It happened yesterday, uh, I will admit, but here we are today. And also we met yesterday. You, I got an email that you were sitting in my Zoom room, my personal Zoom room, and I showed up uh, and... And we had a an impromptu business meeting, as you are often desirous of having, much to my chagrin. Well, I was actually referencing another interview that you had forgotten, and that would be the one that we're talking about in this very episode. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, I used the miracles of video telephony to interview Justin Reich, 
But I asked you if you had some questions for him, and naturally you did. And so you weren't you weren't there to see this, but I read the questions to him using my Jack voice, and also <laughs> threw in you know some some sprightly commentary about uh-huh. how long it was going to take to ask the question. <laughs> you, there was no fake beard or a hoodie. Well, you were you didn't you didn't go full method. For this one, I see. I see. Okay. Oh, that was such a good idea. Well, Jack, I thought I would give you the opportunity to recreate that moment and go ahead and ask one of those questions yourself right now. You write that quote. <laughs> Isn't this fun? <laughs> oh, boy. You write, oh, God. You write that quote, Easily adopted technologies will be those that replicate existing classroom practices, but digitizing what teachers and students already do is unlikely to lead to substantial improvements in schools. End quote. (laughs) Yet, doing something substantially different threatens to be rejected on its face as a violation of the grammar of schooling or the notion of quote-unquote real school. So, how do we thread that needle? So... So in education technology, the way that I sort of brand dilemmas about conservatism is as the curse of the familiar. If you're an ed tech startup, to a first approximation, you've got two roads in front of you. One is you can make a tool that digitizes existing practice. Almost all of the widely adopted education technology tools digitize some existing practice. When you look at Khan Academy, you can glance at three seconds of a video and be like, oh, that's a lecture. It's instantaneously familiar. So you know exactly what to do. But if we just digitize existing practices in schools, it's unlikely that things will get much better. You know, one of the most widely used education technology products in schools is an app created by an MIT uh, dropout called Quizlet. And Quizlet allows uh, students and teachers to make online flashcards. And it works pretty well. And there's probably a whole bunch of people who have memorized things and they memorize them a little faster and a little better because they have this tool. But if we got together and say like, what, what do we really need to move change forward in this country? No one would say like, we've got a real dearth of flashcards in our schools and we just need to find some way to address the flashcard gap that we're facing with Shanghai or whatever else. By contrast, when you make things that are really new, that are really innovative, that change the what kinds of learning students do or the relationship between students and teachers or students and teachers and outside experts and resources, just typically students and teachers find them confusing. They're, they're like, what is this thing? And so there are all these products and projects that have really innovative, you know, what Jack would call sort of new grammars of schooling, and they're really hard to get adopted in schools. Well, a lot of Justin's work is devoted to deflating the excesses of ed tech, like the idea that teachers can be outsourced to algorithms. He's also something of a techno-optimist himself. Just as lots of teachers and students use technology during the pandemic to connect in ways they hadn't before, Justin sees enormous potential in ed tech's ability to shake things up for good. One of the reasons why I remain interested in education technology after mucking around with it for 15 years or whatever is that I think it's uniquely capable of shaking some of the rust off of things that feel stuck. You know, if you walk into a room of teachers and say, hey, the world's changing really fast. Our systems are not serving students as well as they could. We should think about changing our pedagogy, our curriculum, our relationship with students. Most faculty be like, eh, actually we're doing okay. And the stuff you're talking about sounds kind of weird. You go in that same room with some kind of like shiny new device 
and be like, hey, look, it's a symbol of the future. But if we're going to use it well, we have to think differently about um, our pedagogy and our curriculum and our relationship with students. I've just found that faculty are way more willing to have that conversation. It's a catalyst for those kinds of conversations in a way that many other things aren't. Much of Failure to Disrupt is devoted to explaining why EdTech's outsized claims about the future have turned out to be so wrong, and so wrong so often. But I wanted Justin to talk about the more immediate future that awaits us. Like, how should schools respond to the fact that an estimated 10% of students actually liked remote learning better? Figuring out what to do with those students is going to be, I think, quite challenging to deal with responsibly. Most states have some kind of statewide virtual school option. They're almost all terrible. Um, They have really bad outcomes for young people. And if you look really closely at the curriculum materials and things like that, you won't be surprised because they're, for the most part, uninspired, dull curriculum. They're almost all run by two companies, K-12 Incorporated and Pearson Connections Academy. People could go there, but lots of people are not going to be happy if they end up there. There's probably a handful of American school districts that are large enough that they could conceivably stand up their own remote learning school. You know, Boston's and Chicago's and Houston's and things like that. Most of them don't have the expertise, probably won't feel like they have the expertise to do so. Um, Although probably with the stimulus money, they'll have the the resources for it. And there's not really that many good third options. You know, Florida had one statewide school, which by some accounts is actually pretty good, serves some kids uh, sort of well. But, you know, if like if a state were to have an open competition to, you know, create for a district or create for a state, um, a school, you know, Pearson and K-12 have like an army of people who are ready to write the application um, for that. And creative folks with new ideas about what really good on Online learning might look like, you know, are not stood up to be able to do that. Like, we don't have a great answer to that question yet. Part of what concerns Justin is that the for-profit companies that will step in to offer their wares, well, they're really good at advertising, or as we call it on this show, advertising. When companies operate in a marketplace in which they're marketing to people, they use marketing techniques. Um, They're incentivized to get as many people as possible connected with them. For for advocates of sort of free market approaches to schooling, they say, well, this is going to make everyone compete with each other. But they're not necessarily going to compete with each other on educational quality. They're not necessarily going to compete with each other on 12-year outcomes because we don't shop for schools on the basis of 12-year outcomes. We shop for schools on a, on a narrower set of criteria for which it's really hard for you know individual families to make really good decisions about these things, you know, especially when there can be real incentives to not be truthful or not be fully truthful in the same way, you know, in the same way that Kellogg's and Post are not fully truthful with us about uh, the various qualities of the cereals they offer us and so forth. Justin and a group of educators, including Boston middle school teacher Nima Avagia, who you met on our last episode, are also working to answer this question. What should school look like in September? And they're enlisting the help of some experts to get there. When we think about planning for the future, we think planning for the future is crazy 
without talking to young people. The people who are closest to our policy problems should be stakeholders in that work. There is exactly one generation of Americans who have gone to school during a pandemic. You know, there are lots of things in education where we might be able to say, well, I went through that. I kind of know how it goes. I've taught for a while. I have some experience. Nobody knows this except the young people in our classrooms, our Zoom rooms uh, today. The project is called Imagining September, and it starts with a series of questions posed by teachers to their students. We really want to encourage teachers and educators to talk with their students. What went really well this year that you want to carry forward into a more in-person world? What was really hard about remote learning that you hope you never have to manage again? Adults have all kinds of ideas about what we should do for school next year. What do you think we should do for school next year? What should we do to make in-person school better? What should we not do? What do you want to tell adults not to do next year? And then a final question is, what are you most proud of for this year? Young people have shown incredible resilience. One of, you know, one of the most frustrating things about the discourse around learning loss is that kids were learning all the time. You know, This is a generation that probably has more independent, self-regulated learning skills than any group in American history um, that's developed incredible technology-mediated communication skills, we would be fools to not build on that. So we invite teachers to ask these five questions of their students, to take some notes, and then to tell other adults what you've learned. The teachers who are closest to young people have these conversations with young people in unexpected ways, but in powerful ways. It'll inform how our response to next year actually looks. That was Justin Reich. He's the director of the Teaching Systems Lab at MIT. His new book is called Failure to Disrupt, Why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education. Definitely check it out. And I will put a link to the Imagining September survey on the Have You Heard blog and in the show notes. And Jack and I will be right back to reveal the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. Are you in a state where it seems like all of the forces hostile to public education got together in a room and said, let's just go for it? Well, head over to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast so that you can join us in the weeds as we try to figure out what exactly is going on. Since we started working on this episode, there have been a number of news stories about states that are basically saying, nope, no online school next year. You're all going back in person. And I was thinking, you know, this is just going to be such a disaster. As Justin was explaining quite eloquently, we know that there are as many as 10% of kids for whom remote learning worked better for some reason. We know that there are going to be a lot of families that still aren't ready to go back in person. And so when I hear a story like this, I joked on Twitter that I felt like the governor of New Jersey could, like we would, there would be a reveal that he was actually secretly a lobbyist for K-12 Inc., right? Because (laughs) what you're going to end up with is this situation where school districts are unwilling or unable to supply this option that people want. And so then you have these for-profit companies coming along and saying, we're going to do it. And as Justin explained, you know, they have every incentive to up their advertising game, but no incentive at all to up their educational product game. And I just wondered, I think, you know, really, I just want you to make me feel a little better about the world right now. Is that something you could do? 
Um, I can maybe make you feel better first, though. L- let me make you feel a little worse. Oh, thank you, Jack. And say that uh, that these companies that are in the quote-unquote ed tech space have very real costs associated with developing their products and certainly with improving their products. And anytime there are humans involved, uh, right, there are major costs. Um, but there are no costs associated with increasing the number of users for these tech products, particularly if there are no humans involved in terms of supporting them. Uh, so if you're going to make you know, a piece of software and sell it to one person, the costs of developing that piece of software are the same as if you sell it to a million people. Um, it's just that what you will make in terms of your revenue and your overall profit uh, from selling it to a million people will be a lot more. And so the incentives are absolutely stacked in the direction of spending a little bit more on marketing and trying to increase the number of users rather than continually investing in product development and producing something that might actually serve kids better. Um, so, so that's the bad news. <laughs> the, the, the good news, though, is that I think a lot of kids are coming back. Um, and here's why, is that uh, ultimately for young people, there are a lot of reasons to come to school, and almost none of them has to do with the content of school. Um, this is something that ed reformers have, you know, overlooked to the detriment of, you know, young people. This is something that ed reformers have, you know, dramatically overlooked for the past couple of decades as they have cut down on things like lunch and recess and sports and clubs. Um, that, you know a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old isn't coming to school because he or she is desperate to learn about, you know, fractions or the quadratic formula. Uh, well, you know, maybe little Jenny Berkshire was, but um, uh, but but for lots of other kids, it's about being with friends. It's about, um, you know, art class and playing in the recess yard. It's about, you know, football practice or chess club. It's about... Uh, socializing at the lunch table. You know, for some kids, that actually is not a draw. uh, And in fact, it can be a real problem, Um, you know, for kids who really suffer socially in school. um, Online learning can be a a tremendous escape and an outlet and a support for their learning. Uh, And, you know, I think that schools will have to invest more in trying to build out those services to meet those very real needs. But at the same time, there's a lot that schools do that young people are really desperate to get back to. Uh, So my daughter, for instance, has some classmates who basically dropped out of the public system during the pandemic and signed up for Florida Virtual School. Um, But they'll be back. And one of them, in fact, was illegally attending the Somerville Public Schools in order to participate in their strings program because Florida Virtual was not teaching him violin. Uh, And so I think that as the schools begin to open back up, um, it'll be really important to, you know, remind people that they have a broader mission than just delivering content in two tested subject areas or, you know, even five sort of core curricular areas that really it's about uh, helping young people discover their talents and interests and abilities and 
you know, to some degree, leading joyous existences for 180 days a year. Well, Jack, I do feel a little bit better. And you know what would make me feel even better? Oh, God. This... I mean, I know it's one of three different kinds of tricks that you are trying to pull on me. Uh, so, I mean, yes, I do, I do know, but go ahead. If you read the new advertising script that we're doing for ABC Mouse. <laughs> I'm just kidding. This is actually a pre-April Fool's joke. Jack, as you are very well aware, we don't take advertisements on this show. We rely on the support of our <laughs> listeners. Here she goes. And today we're inviting our listeners to accompany us to a special place that we call In the Weeds. And Jack, this our topic for In the Weeds today was inspired by a recent conversation I had with somebody in Missouri. Missouri is a place where Republicans have announced that what they call education reform is a huge priority this session. And the person I was talking to said, you know, I feel like there was a secret meeting and they just got all got together and they said, we're just going to throw as much stuff against Against the wall as we can, and we're going to see what sticks. And so we're going to go into the weeds, and I'm going to describe to you some of the stuff I'm hearing about, and I need your help making sense of it. Are you ready? Well, yes, but before we go there, let me remind our listeners that there are lots of ways that they can support the show without opening their wallets and purses and plastic shopping bags full of coins, as is your want, Jennifer. Um, uh, Actually, I'm more of a cryptocurrency person. Go on. Keep your Bitcoins in your e-wallets and instead go on and uh, give us a rating wherever you download the show. Make sure that you're a subscriber so you get the latest episodes. Um, You can interact with the show's Twitter handle at HaveYouHeardPod. We love hearing what you thought of the latest episode and getting ideas ideas from you about future shows. My favorite is when listeners share uh, either the latest episode or their favorite episode with uh, people who aren't current listeners to the show. Sometimes they tag the show's Twitter handle in that and we can sort of watch people being brought into the Have You Heard fold. Anyway, loads of ways uh, to be a supporter of the show. Uh, But of course, if you want to take Jennifer's bait, Come on into the weeds and uh, take your leap over the paywall. If you would like to leap over the paywall, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast. You'll see a list of all the cool extras you can get just by throwing a couple dollars our way each month. We do a custom reading list for people who subscribe at the $10 a month rate. They get a signed copy of our new book, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. Doesn't that sound intriguing? It's it's very intriguing, uh, but if you've got a library card, um, there's also that access uh, to the book. Um, so anyway, let's uh, let's go into the weeds and uh, let's leave it there. Until next time, I'm Jennifer Berkshire, and I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. Mm-hmm.